This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. Breaking news, LeBron is a Laker. This Clippers team will win a championship this year. All George, corner three. Yes! Bryant has to put it up with the buzzer. Backs it in! Ha-ha! He backs in the three! And the Lakers win the game! What's good, everybody? Welcome back to the Battle for LA podcast, part of the Clutch Points and Blue Wire Networks. As always, your Clippers reporter for Clutch Points, Tom Arley here. Uh, Ryan Ward, our Lakers guy on the other side. Um, and today we have a special guest. Uh, Tuck Juice is joining the pod. Karan Butler, thank you for taking the time. Uh, to join us today. Uh, thanks for having me on. How you guys doing? Uh, I'm good. I'm good. We're great. Uh, you know, trying, trying to self-isolate, stay at home, stay quarantined, and stay safe. Um, yeah, that's about it right now. Scratching at the walls, man. Scratching at the walls. <laughs> how about yourself? How are you holding up so far in this uh, sort of self-isolation period where there's no sports going on, there's not much going on in the world, really? Uh, just like everybody else, uh, you know, just trying to stay busy. Uh, got some much-needed family time uh, with the loved ones. You know, I'm a father of three girls in the house, four girls total, uh, five kids in total. And my son is back from college, so we're doing a lot of basketball on the court, playing chess. In the meantime, my daughter, she's, you know, uh, club volleyball, uh, softball. She does it all. And then now the spring break is over, so we're right back to – you know, the fundamentals of education. So, you know, fourth grade, sixth grade is extremely hard. Uh, the, the arithmetic has changed uh, significantly, but at the same time, you know, enjoying this downtown. So is is it a big difference for you going from, because you were doing the players-only stuff, you, you were really following the, the NBA as an analyst on NBA TV as well. Is it a big change for you as well? Uh, I mean, look, it's, it's, it's kind of a change, but, at the same time, I'm still, uh, you know, working. You know, where where you look at NBA television, I'm still creating content. I'm still going live on Cloud9, mm-hmm. uh, those platforms where we're able to, you know, do everything via remotely from our laptops and still produce the shows and have the shows. And, you know, with my podcast, I'm still doing, uh, you know, doing that, you know, dropping the episode. Every week I've been doing a lot of interviews because, you know, everybody's available now, you know, and should be, <laughs> right. you know, under the stay-at-home order. So just been doing a lot of those things. So when you look at what's going on in the NBA right now, I mean, there's not a lot of information out there in terms of when the NBA could return. But in your opinion, maybe what you've heard or what you think um, – what's your what's your your thought on, on the NBA returning this year? Is, is it a possibility? Do you think it'll happen? Yeah, I I do. I I still I'm still confident and hopeful. I know that a lot of things have to happen. I mean, 
first and foremost, you have to see the, the flattening of the curve, and I think that you're seeing some positive signs in certain states, and then, you know, selected states have elected to do other things, and you're not seeing the same progression. Uh, you're actually seeing the the surge and in, in spiking numbers. You know, we look at states like, you know, uh, Florida and so many more. But uh, for the most part, uh, the players have, you know, stayed, you know, committed to the stay-at-home order. And, you know, those guys aren't out. They're practicing social distancing. They're staying away from, you know, uh, people and, you know, just trying their best to, you know, stick by those guidelines. And I think that, you know, when the testing and the turnaround is much quicker where you have five-minute testing and, you're able to have possibly a location, and, you know, I think that the, the NBPA is going to have to agree on a lot of things, and they're going to have to come to a median where this makes sense. And, you know, the stoppage of pay is going to have a huge impact on that. And I think that the essentials in the workplace are going to have a huge uh, impact on the decision as well. But Adam Silver, where's the will, there's a way. And the reason <laughs> I say that is because, you know, Adam Silver was the first one to, to you know, step out there on the limb and say, you know what, we're canceling all games for the protection of our fans and our players. And that was a huge move, and that was the first domino to fall in major sports, and then everybody else kind of followed the leadership of the National Basketball Association. So I think that they're going to follow us as well on the pathway of coming back. And if there's a way that we can get back on the platform and play the game of basketball safely, um, and I don't think it will be fans in attendance, but still they'll be watching from wherever respectfully, and uh, it it happened. I think it would happen at some point. What do you what do you think of the prospect of uh, of Vegas of everybody going to Vegas and being kind of quarantined in that city and playing playing out the playoffs really? You think that's I wouldn't realistic? mind it. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I think yeah, that, I know. you know a lot of th- a lot of things are on the table. You know, a lot of things are on the table, and I think that is a realistic uh, suggestion, and you know, something that's probably being explored multiple ways. And um, you know, just speaking candidly with you guys, that's not the first time that I heard that, and you know, it it goes all the way to closer up top where I heard those conversations happening about uh, Vegas, even you know, possibly a remote location where, you know, a college campus or whatever the case may be. So those conversations are being discussed and had. And, you know, like I said, at the end of the day, it's going to have to be a median and an arrangement between the players actively, the union and the association, you know, agreeing to terms and saying that, you know what, this is best for, you know, our fans. This is best for us. It's safe. It's, it's a healthy environment. Let's go and put on the show because, you know, live entertainment is definitely missed. You know, when you're looking around and seeing the realities of your world, whether you're watching Fox or CNN or whatever the case, you know, it's scary. And you need something to, uh, you know, just, you know, take you away from that for a while. And we're missing sports. Yeah, there's the, I feel like there's a sense to really get back to, to some sort of normalcy and reality. And I think sports is the first big step towards that. Well, you look at the documentary last night when Michael Jordan and they they dropped it, the last dance, and I think it was just perfect because for you know those two hours, a lot of people wasn't talking about anything, doing anything, but just talking about you know what they were seeing in real time, and that that was something that's that's been put together ever since like 2001, 
You know, I saw a glimpse of that back in 2002 at my uh, NBA transition. And it was, yeah, it was, you know, talking about opening the vault. But, you know, some of the players, Michael George specifically, uh, didn't want to sign off or approve that. So I think that it was just kind of lingering, lingering out there. And then uh, I think that, you know, after, you know, uh, one of the championship runs of, you know, Cleveland or something, and people was talking about, you know, the greatness and, you know, behind the scenes. And I think that they had short memories. Uh, you know, Michael Jordan said release the tapes. And, you know, once they release the tapes, you know, everybody get a chance to, to see the layers and the options of, you know, the greatness of Michael Jordan. Yeah, I've been trying to tell these guys the clutch points, uh, how good Michael Jordan was. They're all about uh, LeBron, Tamer. I'm sure could attest to that. <laughs> well, I grew up in the LeBron era. Uh, I didn't get to and watch I, Jordan. And I grew much, up in Jordan. Yeah, so it's two different yeah. eras we yeah. watched there. Yeah. Well, it's cool, though. So what do you like, think? It's, it's dope. No, it, listen, it's, it's dope. Well, like, look, you, you look at you look at everything. Look, co- Michael Jordan was great, but he, it, the foundation was laid from you know the other greats. When you look at you know guys like Kareem, Will Chamberlain, Bill Russell, Bill Russell, Jerry West, uh, Magic, Larry Bird, those guys, Dr. J, uh, they laid out the, the groundwork, and then all of a sudden Jordan came and he remixed it. And then, you know, Kobe and Shaq and uh, Olajuwon, all those guys came and they remixed it. And then, you know, now LeBron, you know, he came and he remixed it in his way. And now someone else is going to come, you know, him and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry, all those guys, like, this is going to be a remix after remix. And, you know, they're dominant players and eras. But ultimately, when you look at the body of work for, for certain individuals, you know, you got to say Kareem, Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, LeBron James. You know, they, they're the cream of the crop. You know, they stand out above uh, so many others. But, you know, look, they're all great. They're all kings. And I, I think that we don't, we're, we're the only, you know, professional sport league that, that have these, like, conversations where we don't, you know, praise all of our guys like that. You know, uh, football does it all the time where, you know, they say, you know, look, Tom Brady, Dan Marino, Brett Favre, they all was great. You know, it's not no, you know, it's not no picking one against the other or anything like that. It's just they're all great. So I'm going to leave it at that. Why, why do you think that is? Why do you think fans debate differently that way? And that NBA fans are always like there's got to be sort of one or two goats, whereas, you know, in the NFL, like you just mentioned, there's, there's a bunch of, of, you know, Hall of Fame quarterbacks that are brought up, a bunch of running backs that are brought up. I, you know, that's interesting. Uh, I, I don't know. That's that's a great question, uh, but I know that I wouldn't be one. Like last night, you know, LeBron James and, and Maverick Carter let me take over their platform uninterrupted, and I mm-hmm. was live tweeting from the platform. And all I was saying was, you know, just how great Michael Jordan was. I mean, he was one of the reasons why I got inspired to play the game of basketball growing up in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, just north of Chicago. But at the same time, it's like I respectfully know the the greatness of what I've seen out of LeBron as well. Uh one of the all all around best players I ever seen in my in my life and played against. You know, my brother, my late great brother, you know, Kobe Bryant, one of the most fundamentally sound players and closest thing I've seen to Michael Jordan ever. You know, um is great. Agreed. And Michael Jordan himself is great. Like and Magic Johnson was great. Larry Bird was great. Like I I got all – I love them all differently for different reasons. And I think that they're all great in their own right. And, you know, I mean, who are we to say the one is greater than the other just because, you know, uh, <laughs> our emotional attachment 
to these individuals. Like they all did some significant things, and you cannot tell the story of basketball without mentioning any of those guys. I think it boils down to the fact that we're just lucky. I mean, I I I got to see the tail end of Magic. I saw Jordan in his prime, saw Kobe come up, um, and now LeBron. I mean, that's that's a hell of a run. You know what I mean? That's a lot of great basketball. It's a lot of great basketball players. It's a lot of great games. We're just lucky, I think, you know, when it, when it boils down to it. I mean, those debates are going to go on forever. There's never going to be a definitive answer. It's just the way it is, right? No, and I, and I will say this to the fans, you know, don't, don't, don't take none of these guys for granted. As you're looking at Kevin Durant, as you're looking at LeBron James, what he's doing in year 17, show your appreciation. You know, because you never know, like, with the business of basketball, we're, we we see it in, a, in uh, the Bulls documentary. Things happen beyond a lot of con- uh, of our controls, you know, as, you know, professional athletes where, you know, uh, legacies are, you know, ended early, uh, injuries, things happen. So, you know, show your appreciation for, you know, these individuals that entertain us and that give us reason to, you know, pop the popcorn and do whatever we do before we watch games, put on the jerseys right now, staying at home in quarantine. I had a whole Michael Jordan outfit on. Like, pay homage, <laughs> you know, while these guys are, you know, still able to smell the flowers. Like, show your appreciation because that's what it's all about. So you were rocking the 45, weren't you? Bro, I if, if you check out the video, I was rocking the 45, and then at the end of the video I switched it. And I had the twenty three on. You know what I'm saying? Like, so that yeah. that was I was trying to show everybody my editing skills. <laughs> like you had, did you uh, you ordered a bunch of food from Chicago or something, right? Like, uh, yeah, the, man, I ordered the pizzas, the deep dish pizzas. I had to represent. Uh, <laughs> my wife had said, uh, you know, look, we 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 got to have everything Chicago going down, and I was like, all right, cool. Order Chicago deep dish pizzas. I'm going to have this. I'm going to have that. I'm going to have the jerseys. I'm going to have the shoes on. Everybody in the family going to have some Bulls memorabilia on. And we were just ready. So what did, what did you make of, of, of the first two episodes? I mean, it, it felt almost like a tease because I was ready to sit down and watch the next eight right away. I didn't want to get up. I wanted them all now. I feel like everyone else felt that way. How did you how did you receive receive the first two episodes? I mean, yeah, your thoughts on the first two? Yeah, you know, so I I had the I had the privilege of watching it, you know, um, probably a couple of days prior, and um, I ended up watching it again in real time so I could tweet about it. Uh, the first the first episode, uh, you know, clearly they're just giving us the education of you know the the relationship between front office and Michael Jordan and, you know, the unity of Scottie Pippen and the brotherhood. But when you tapped into, you know, Scottie Pippen and how he was being mistreated and where he fared, you know, amongst the playing field of the, the other guys in the league, you know, uh, being paid number six and on the Bulls roster, but, you know, led in all statistical categories, you know, number two, at least top two in all categories and how he was just going undervalued, unappreciated, and how they gave him a piece of the low-hanging fruit, the seven years, eighteen million, like that was crazy. Um, it, it was a, it was a life lesson. It was an educational lesson for a lot of people. Like I did not know that. I didn't know that financial position, and I didn't know that Scotty had elected to, you know, uh, make a decision, you know, for himself 
uh, to have the surgery, to not start the season, all those things. So that was a lesson for me. And then now, you know, going forward, uh, just a little, no spoiler alert, but just a little foresight, you know, people are going to see Dennis Rodman, you know, appear in the next two episodes where you're going to see, like, he wasn't really part of the fabric of the team off the court. You know, he always did his own thing. You know, he showed up at the games and you didn't see Dennis no more. So that's going to be interesting to see that type of dynamic and what he brought. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of layers to the Chicago Bulls and how they made that work. So if, if Dennis Rodman is in the next episode, that means we got some bad boy Pistons coming up, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, man. You got a lot of that. Uh, you got a lot of history. You got a lot of – you're going to have a lot of partying. <laughs> don't be shocked if you see Carmen Electra <laughs> make her, de- her debut. For those who don't know who Carmen Electra is, go Google it. <laughs> I wanted to pause real quick to talk to you guys about Bet Online. With no NBA, NHL, or MLB right now, you might think that there's nothing to bet on. Well, you'd be wrong. Our exclusive partner, BetOnline, still has hundreds of events, games, and props you can wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas right to you. Are you missing the NFL? No problem. BetOnline has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, even stock prices, and even a hot dog eating contest. All open 24 hours a day and all online. Use promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your welcome bonus. That's B-L-U-E-W-I-R-E. Bet online, your online wagering solution. So I wanted to jump right into just uh, just a, a bit of your NBA career. I mean, draft to 10th overall. Um, y- your, your thoughts entering the draft. Um, every player has some sort of different emotions and thoughts going through their head. What was it like for you, the whole draft process, getting selected by the Heat and all that? You know what? The, the whole draft process was crazy because I didn't know, you know, whether, you know, what was going to happen, whether I was going to get drafted. You know, I had a lot of, you know, workouts. I did more than the typical lottery pick would do. I was given all these promises from different teams and organizations. Not not going to go too far into that, but, you know, people told me, don't work out for no one else. I'm taking you at this pick. And I'm like, oh, okay. But, you know, my agent said, you know, they tell that to everybody. Continue uh-huh. to work out. Continue to do it. You know, and it was it was a lot. You know, because I was I was traveling. You know, pretty much like how I do now, just you know working. But I was traveling like three three four days a week, you know, working out for teams and you know uh, working out two days a a, a, a day uh, two times a day in the midst of the training process. You know, getting ready and prepared for the draft. So what was the what was the the difference in lifestyle like from from UConn to the NBA? I mean, obviously it's a big difference, but for you, where where was what was the most difference? Where, where can you highlight that? Well, I always tell people, you know, when you're like when you're preparing for life, like education is the priority, and then you you know basketball was like on the back burner, and you know, then you still just, you know, you have fun. You had, you know, college. College was college. You know, sometimes you, you know, you do camaraderie stuff. Sometimes you exercise to go to, you know, gatherings together, whether you uh, the first man or the starter or whatever. You know, you just, you know, college lifestyle, you get the college experience. But, you know, as a professional, you know, everything is revolved around your job, your, your craft, what you're supposed to be the elite of the elite at. And that changed immediately because uh, it wasn't nothing but my life revolved around nothing but basketball. If I wasn't playing, I was preparing to play. I was educating myself on other guys that I had to play against. 
you know, um, I start understanding the art of how to watch film and how to study people and their tendencies, things like that. So my life immediately just changed. You know, I I, I became like a full time student to the game of basketball. Mm-hmm. What was it like playing with uh, Dwayne Wade during his rookie season? Oh, it was crazy. Uh, <laughs> Dwayne, uh, he was so talented. You know, and uh, I I played Dwayne uh, so much in uh, the AAU circuit. You know, him being from Chicago, me me from Racine. You know, we like pretty much every tournament. You know, the Illinois Warriors was always there, and you know him, uh, Eddie Curry. Uh, <laughs> you know, I saw him, Eddie Curry, Darius Miles, uh, Wow, uh, Clint Richardson, uh, <laughs> all those guys. Like you know, this this is the cream of the crop. There's like the top you know, five or six players in the country right there in that market. And we were just always playing or banging up against each other. So uh, it was special just to acquire him and have him on the same team because, you know, we knew he was special immediately when he came in. You know, you're seeing the, the story of Michael Jordan and a lot of people was like how Jordan came in and just, you know, he was itching and fighting for to be the best on the team immediately. And he said he attacked the best player on the team. And, you know, it wasn't no different from, you know, Dwayne Wade. And once he came on the scene, people just knew that he was it. You know, whatever it is, he had it. And he came and he dominated. And I felt like as good as he was on the collegiate level, uh, the space of the NBA opened up and it was just really fit for his game. And I'll never forget, they had him coming off like staggered games, uh, staggered picks and the wheel action and, you know, slice cuts and all that shit. And all of a sudden, you know, Stan Van Gundy was like, you know what, like, let's put the ball in his hand. Let's see what he looks like in a pick and roll. And that was just history. That's when Dwayne Wade became, you know, pretty much flash and a superstar in this league because I've never seen anybody in the pick and roll that couldn't just be stopped. Like he, you couldn't guard him in a pick and roll situation. If you was wow. if the big came up, he attacked the big. If a big showed, he split the defense. If you sent the small, he 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 uh, managed to you know get right to his spot and shoot over the small because they wasn't able to stop him because he had momentum because he had the basketball already and he was going downhill. Like it was just it was just something to watch putting him in a pick and roll setting. And that immediately became our offense. It was a one, it was a one four flat, and the five or the four or the three, or sometimes even the two, would come up in this set of picks and let Dwayne go to work. And he was such a leader early, where he was distributing the basketball as well. Also, well, I mean, it, it's it's almost unfortunate you only got one year to play with him, but not a lot of players can say they got traded for a Hall of Famer and dominant player like Shaq. Um, you know, ULO, uh, Brian Grant, uh, that trade to L.A., I mean, sh- surprising, shocking, I mean, happy? Like, how did you take that? I, you know, that was my introduction to the business of basketball because um, I actually was in Antigua. I was just coming from Antigua, and I did a basketball without borders, like, event for the Miami Heat, mm-hmm. and I was seeing all this trade news and trade talk and, I don't know if people remember these days, but, like, when you used to look at ESPN, they have it on the bottom of the ticker, big, broad. Like, yeah. This is a little different <laughs> now, but it was huge. 
And it was just like Shaquille O'Neal <laughs> maybe coming to the Miami Heat, and you see Stuart Scott reporting it, and all this these these. It's like an all day like, well, thing, right? Yeah, trades, and I've never seen my name in it though. I was like, oh shit, he coming, you know, somebody Brian Grant, and, and I was like, well, I don't know anything about that. I'm here forever. Like I got drafted by the Heat, <laughs> and then all of a sudden I I see my name, you know, and I'm like, oh, and I'm like, what does that mean? And I got the phone call from Pat Riley just. Telling me, man, you know, sorry, it's Shaq. I had to, you know. <laughs> this is like one of those things, and I, I, I was just sad because, you know, you, you make a, a emotional connection with an organization uh, in those two years. You know, I never left. I always was there, and then I had to pivot and go to Los Angeles, which wasn't a bad thing, but it was just like, what's next? Like, am I ready for this? And then I get to Los Angeles and. I arrive at the press conference and, you know, my big brother there waiting for me, you know, Kobe Bryant, he signs a huge deal over $130 million right there in front of us. And then also we do our press conference. And what a lot of people always do is, you know, they go off on vacation. They, you know, the fruits of their labor, you know, they enjoy it, you know, work hard, you sign a contract. Most people quit their job when they hit the lottery, not Kobe. You know, Kobe was right there. He was like, Hey, tomorrow we blacking out and I was like what the what the fuck does that mean like blackout like what <laughs> like yo we working out like be be here tomorrow like what time he like seven thirty, seven fifteen. be here and I get there and he's already there and got his stuff together and that started my you know introduction to you know the Kobe sessions and you know really introduced me to work uh, work ethic and all those things and how to be a professional in real time this was the day after the press conference, the introductory press conference? Yeah, man. Right wow. after. <laughs> so, like, I mean. Be ready. Be ready. Wow. Uh, so, your year with Los, with Los Angeles, uh, with the Lakers, um, just, it wasn't the greatest year. I think you guys missed the playoffs. But spending that year with, with Kobe, um, what, what was that like for you, especially now in hindsight looking back at it? Well, I always tell, you know, people that, that when I got when I got to Miami, um, Alonzo Mourning had had the kidney situation, so he wasn't able to uh, be on the basketball court and do all the things, you know, from a leadership standpoint. So we was trying to like pretty much rebuild on the fly. Mm-hmm. But they always talked about the culture and the preparation and all these things, and you know, they was just instilling all the right things in us, you know, for us to have longevity in basketball. We had a somewhat of a young team, myself, Lamar Odom, D. Wade, you know, Rasul Butler, rest in peace, Sean Lampley, so many more. And um, they were just trying to teach us the things. But when I get to Los Angeles, you know, Kobe, you know, he was doing it. Not only was he teaching it, but he was doing it and, like, giving us the the in-depth look of what it is. You know, like, we got the teachings in Miami, but he was giving us the teachings and the lessons and then following through in real time. So, and plus, he was already established, you know, as a champion and all those things and a perennial all-star and all-NBA talent. So everything was just there, and it was somebody that I respected. And immediately, you know, I gained his respect because I was always there. I never, you know, shied away from work. And that's why we became not just really good teammates, but, you know, ultimately, you know, really good friends, you know, away from the game of basketball. 
when you when you look at when you look at I guess I I I didn't realize you were traded so much. Like I knew you were traded, but your first free agency move was down in 2013 with the 2011 with the Clippers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. So uh, before we jump over there, um, you also got I think your best years of your career came in in Washington, um, alongside Gilbert Arenas, Anton Jameson. Um, that was a, that was a solid team. Looking back at it, I mean, you guys had sort of like a big three. Looking back at it, um, what was your experience there like? <laughs> I mean, you know, we we had you know one of the highest scoring trios in NBA history, um, still do, and I think that you know uh, from a successful standpoint, like we were just so talented, but it was it was an opportunity of a lifetime that we you know let slip in between the cracks. And it happened for numerous reasons, you know, um, immaturity, uh, you know, with the injuries of, you know, Gilbert Arenas, uh, myself, one year in the postseason, I broke my hand, uh, mm-hmm. like two games right before the, the end of the regular season, and I wasn't able to play in the playoffs. Uh, Antoine Jameson had a shoulder injury, wasn't able to play, and then Gilbert Arenas, you know, just uh, a, a list of this lingering knee injuries that, uh, that kind of kept him out of the postseason play for quite some time. But uh, we we had a ton of success, like, individually because we were just so talented. You had three guys on the team that, you know, was all all-stars, averaging over 20 points respectfully, uh, and just wasn't able to, you know, remain healthy all at the same time. And that was our Achilles heel. When you look at, uh, at, at Gilbert, I mean, a lot of people call him sort of the Steph – before Steph, in terms of his shooting range and, and the three-point threat that he brought to the NBA. Um, what do you make of that sort of comparison? Is that accurate? You know, nah. You know, Gilbert was – I think Gilbert was more James Harden because mm-hmm. Gilbert mm-hmm. used to – you know, you look at Gilbert's game. Like, Gilbert was getting to the line more than nine times a game. So, I mean, he was just so explosive. He was dynamic. He was He was a big guard. He wasn't – Small, you know, Steph's size was a little different, and uh, he lived by the long ball. Gilbert was able to shoot the long ball, but he didn't have no weakness in his game. Um, he really didn't. And you know, when he was ready to scrap up, he scrap up. If he was ready, ready to go at you offensively, he'd go at you. Like he just had the complete package, and he was a workhorse. You know, he really was. He was able to do everything. You know, offensively on the basketball court. So he he puts me in the mind of. Uh, James Harden uh, a lot. That's interesting. That's uh, he was like James Harden before James Harden. Really, I mean, it's a shame yeah, that he he couldn't stay healthy. I mean, who knows what he could have accomplished? Um, some healthy knees. I'll say just the numbers that he was the, the staggering numbers that he was putting up uh, was just he dropped just sixty on Kobe once, right? He dropped he dropped fifties and sixties on a lot of people. That was sixty one time, but fifties a lot, you know, and often. <laughs> and he he lets you know yeah. about it too, you know. Even before it was happening, you know, he was giving everybody a, <laughs> you know, like a a forewarning, just let them know that it was coming. Not the not the I guess you're probably not fond of these years as well, but three straight years against you know the twenty one, twenty two, twenty three year old LeBron and the Cavs. Uh, just your takeaway on, on, on him and, and how he was able to grow as a player, develop as a player during those three years, because those were those were some hard fought battles. Obviously, you guys weren't 
healthy um, all the time. But just your thoughts on that series and what LeBron was able to do at 21, 22 years old. Man, it was amazing. And, you know, I, I can't wait till you know, his documentary or whatever happens where, you know, I can go into, like, depth of the conversations and what those locker rooms was like, you know, preparing and going at him offensively and preparing for him defensively. Uh, you know, uh, one one year we we just we gave it up. We had them. We did exactly what we were supposed to do. And um, I, I remember Gilbert missing the free throws that pretty much cost us that series. You know, because that the momentum of everything just shifted. And I think, you know, from that moment, the confidence was lost because um, it just wasn't there no more. Uh, when Gilbert went and missed two free throws up there, and then I had an opportunity at the end where he threw it to me, and I was wide open for three, uh, fell a little short, and that that just changed the whole series. But LeBron was so dominant, and what people don't understand is that, and I I found this out rather quickly, is that you know I I was going at LeBron offensively and defensively, and we was throwing a lot of different things at him, but he was so clever. And we start realizing that he can beat you in multiple ways. Offensively, if you force him to score the basketball, he can score. And he was so big when you when you sent the trap in the double teams and the reds, he was so clever and smart where he was able to see over the double teams because he's six eight, six nine. He was able to make the jump pass, always the right pass to the right outlet, who was uh, able to knock down shots. I mean, I remember one series where he made Eric Snow a score, where Eric Snow was knocking down, you know, jump shots consistently because he had enough time and he had the confidence from, you know, his superstar player to knock down shots. Mm -hmm. So we just watched him evolve and become, you know, a superstar you know, right in front of our eyes. You know, it was it was it was it was hell of a battles, but it was, you know, some fun, and we always came out on the short end of the stick. Did it feel like a rivalry at the time with three playoff series in a row? You know, obviously, you guys are in the same conference. Oh hell yeah! You know, even in the regular season, like we was just, I think that <laughs> we was always like in the regular season, we were just ready just to play them. You know, we had so much mixed emotions. You know, you're talking about Jay Z you know, dropping diss tracks in the midst of our playoff series. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah. Talking about Soldier Boy and Jim Jones and shit. We had Suge Knight, you know, at, at the games courtside. You know, it was just, <laughs> it was a lot happening, man. You know, uh, it was a lot happening at the time. You know, it was a fun series, the most entertaining series to be a part of. I think that, you know, back then when you look at the first rounds, you know, everybody was tuned in to, our series because, you know, they just knew that LeBron was the next up. And, um, you know, we wasn't give a hell of a battle. So it was like always one of the most watched series. You're, you're I guess, I, I don't know where you see this at, but, but Dallas was a big year for you in 2011. Um, got traded there the first year. And then the second year, I think you get injured. Um, but just take us through that, that championship winning year. I think that Dallas team was – pretty severely underrated most of the year. I don't think anyone had them coming out of the West, let alone maybe even the conference finals. Uh, do you talk about that year you had in Dallas where you guys won the title? I mean, no one had us, but we had us. 
You know, I think, you know, initially Jason, Jason Terry had at the beginning of the season when it got the championship trophy tattooed on his bicep. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I was just coming off a hell of a, you know, playoff run, you know, the year prior versus San Antonio Spurs where I averaged like 20 and put in some work, had a, you know, a couple of 28, 30-point games, stuff like that. So my confidence, Rick Carlisle had came out and spent a lot of the summer with me just offensively telling me just to be more aggressive, be more assertive. Uh, the offenses, I'm going to be featured more next to Dirk. And um, just found out where I wanted the basketball and all my sweet spots and all the things that I wanted to do. So we was excited about the season, and we, we crowned ourselves as champions. You know, um, early, and I, I never forget. You know, being one of the top three scorers on that team, and going into uh, you know uh, Milwaukee at the time. I think it was January, New Year's Day, and I I think I had like 300 people in attendance at the Milwaukee Bucks game, and you know that was an easy win for us playing against the Bucks that time. And I go down, and no contact at all. I rupture my patella, and uh, my kneecap literally like dropped to like the front of my my shin and I was just like ah just on the ground and Dirk was trying to help me up you know I pushed his hand away I I wanted to get up on my own wheel and I eventually got up and uh you know walked off on my own wheel and I go in the locker room and Mark Cuban and you know uh Don Nelson those guys they come in there and uh they just like yo I like we don't think he's gonna be able to come back or anything like that. And um, immediately, you know, Mark said, don't worry about nothing. You're not going nowhere. You're part of this. You, you, you're too important to this team. And, uh, you know, find a way. Just find a way. And i never forget him just saying that. So when I flew back and I got the surgery, immediately I just got back on my feet. You know, I was told to, like, stay off my feet for, like, two weeks. I was like, you know, fuck that. I'm getting up. I start coming to practices. I start, you know, being in the training room. I was just around the team. I, I was traveling with the team. I was just like, I'm not going to miss a beat because, you know, me as one of the leaders on this ball club, you know, my production was missed. I think they had to go out and get, like, three players to fill that void. When you look at Pedro Stoyakovich, Corey Brewer. Right. Uh, I think we went and got another guy as well. Uh, at the time, um, it was it was just a tough transition. But I still that's what, that's why I like the optics of the game. I start looking at the game so differently, and this goes to like the film sessions and things like that with Pat Riley and Kobe Bryant and Rudy T and you know Eddie Jordan and the way that they seen and study film. Uh, I was just able to sit in the film session and always being a student of the game. I found ways to just like insert myself and give priceless and valuable information, you know, so I wouldn't just be like physically on the sideline just existing, but I found a way to insert myself. I remember that that year was the first year that I got credentialed for the Lakers. And uh, I remember it vividly because I got to see, was it game one and game two? Against you guys at the Staples Center, right? Where you guys you swept the Lakers. All the threes, what I remember. All the three yeah. pointers. Oh my god! Oh my god! It was just a barrage of threes. And I remember, I think it was Game Two, 
Kobe had a chance to win the game with the game winner, and he missed it. Right, it was the last the last game with Staples, and then so it was so. You guys the, went to the Dallas. rotation was so bad. Yeah, the rotation was so bad, and that was when Bynum made that like that crazy foul on JJ. Yeah, that's what I was about yeah. to ask you. Yeah. I was like, what, yeah. what was it like seeing that? Because then Odom did something after that, and he got booted too, from what I remember. So let, let me tell you, whenever people make like um, critical decisions in the midst of playing, that means that they're just frustrated and they know that there's no way physically that they can win this series because they're just outmatched and undermanned. And I think that, you know, I know my brother, uh, Kobe Kobe was a little hobbled that series. He still was balling, but he wasn't quite himself. And I think that, you know, when you look at dirt, we was able to stretch uh, Powell and their guys out away from the basket where they wasn't able to guard us because Sean Marion, you know, he was a hybrid. He was bouncing around. He was elusive. Uh, he did an excellent job on Kobe. Then you had Sean Stevenson coming in, so it really wasn't no no uh, – no, no, like slouches out there. Then offensively, we was making shots, and then the pick and roll penetration game was killing them. That's why we was able to live on the perimeter and knock down shots. And that kind of really just became our style of play going forward. And that gave us a lot of momentum. Would you say that's that like the kind of the beginning of the new era of basketball at the time? Stretching the floor, everybody can shoot from outside because the Lakers were super long. And they were still a really good basketball team at that point, right? They were going for the three-peat. And, but they just couldn't contend with you guys. And no one actually could for the rest of the playoffs. I mean, even the Heat in yeah. the finals. I mean, they were outmatched too. I, and they had super, they had three I, superstars. I think we gave a lot of people a, 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 a blueprint on how to win strategically and still be successful without having – like the the recipe of multiple superstars, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a mm-hmm. it's like a short list of teams that's gonna have you know two superstars and another you know B minus or C plus player, and then you have the necessary ingredients around them. But we did it with like you know we did it with super veteran leadership. We had like the vets, we had the youth, we had a mix of the youth. We was developing them. And then we had our, you know, our agent superstar that was just, you know, brilliant. You know, he played at an all-time level. You know what I mean? One of the best all-time uh, performances in the playoffs run ever, in my eyes, that get overlooked often. But I think that we just had a group of individuals that just knew their role, knew how to play it, um, and all the all the all all the ingredients of that team just like complemented one another. You know what I mean? Like you had passion, you had hardship, you had adversity, you had overcomers, you had great leadership from the coaching staff, great management, uh, and all those things just kind of just hit all at one time, and that's why we was able to win a championship. There was a lot of you know veteran guys that all wanted to win a title. You know, after playing for so long, right? Jason Kidd, Derek, obviously, Jason Terry, you. I mean. The chemistry you guys had was incredible, from what I remember. I mean, you just yeah, yeah, you know, guys was willing to sacrifice and do whatever for each other in order to, you know, get a victory. You have to face it like sometimes, and I know especially back then, 
financially, you know, those things are important, right? So people are playing for contracts, all these different things. But we had a team full of guys that already got paid handsomely. You know, guys, you know, uh, made all-star appearances, you know, did all the hoopla and the symbolic trophies and all that shit. You know, it was just at a point now where it's just like, damn, let's put the seal on our legacy. Let's, let's win a championship by any means. Like, and you know, I was on the side, you know, like, fuck, like, this is an opportunity. I may not ever get this opportunity again. And I didn't, you know, I came close again. I was yeah. four, I was five, I was five wins away, you know, playing with OKC in the Western Conference uh, finals to beat San Antonio, who went off and win the championship. But we went to game six and we had an opportunity. But, you know, you don't get those opportunities often. And, you know, you know, look at LeBron, you know, played, what, eight of them? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, you, you you don't get the the luxury of, you know, keep going back unless you wanted the elite of the elites and a lot of things, a lot of dominoes, everything got to line up. And, you know, that was just an opportunity of a lifetime. And everybody was all in and they understood the moment. Before I move on to your next, your next stop, uh, what was Mark Cuban like as an owner? Because you, you mentioned that, you know, he, he, he sort of, uh, you know, secured you after the injury. He said, you know, you're not going anywhere. You're part of this team and everything. And you highlighted that management was a big part of the success you guys had. Uh, what was he like as, as a team owner? I mean, he was awesome. And I, I tell people this all the time. Uh, Mark Cuban is one of the best owners in any professional sport ever. and you know, still to this day, I'm able to, you know, call Mark, text Mark, whatever, and drop it a dime. He's going to assist or help or give me, you know, insight or whatever I need. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, that's that just goes to show you what type of human being he is. You think he should run for president? Uh, hell yeah. Why not? <laughs> I like that. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. Why not? Uh, I saw an interview with him like a couple of days ago, and he looked like he was actually seriously considering it. I was like, oh, wow, that's going to make things pretty interesting <laughs> in the coming months. Yeah. Hey, listen, I mean, you look at, you know, the world today, and, you know, you, you also look at, you know, his platforms and how he's using it and how he's giving it back. You know, he's showing a great, great poise in leadership, and I think that, you know, he's, he can take on anything, and whatever he takes on is going to be calculated. Uh, he's going to assess all the risks, and he's going to definitely, best believe, 100% have a plan in place, a plan A, B, and C. So I, I asked about I asked about Mark Cuban because you went from arguably one of the best owners to probably one of the worst, I mean, by public opinion, uh, with the Clippers. I mean, look, it's, it's funny, but I, I think that it's true. Um, you signed the deal with the Clippers, uh, and then and then not long after, you guys have that. Um, well, what did you see in the Clippers first of all that you decided to sign there? Well, it was a great. I mean, at the end of the day, I knew that I wasn't going to go back to Los Angeles and live and have a life after basketball, mm-hmm. and I was preparing for that always, you know. Um, and that was a great chance for me to, you know, still be, you know, in somewhat of the prime of my career where. I was able to play. I was able to, you know, still, you know, get some traction uh, on the court that would, you know, eventually give me some traction off the court. And I just, you know, took full advantage of that. And I was just like, yo, it's a golden opportunity, some young talent. I can help these guys, Blake, DeAndre. I can, you know, pour into these individuals and just really help them. 
You know, I didn't know that, you know, the Chris Paul thing would possibly happen and then all of a sudden we will become an elite team. Mm-hmm. So it was just a great, you know, time for us. So uh, I asked because I remember that, that popular video, the viral video went of, of Blake and DJ called, you know, Lob City. Uh, I think you were in the video as well talking about it. Uh, talk about your reaction to that because that video went viral. I think it's still being played today about, you know, Lob City and all the alley-oop dunks and all that. You remember that moment? Yeah, I, I posted that moment like a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I was like, this is when Lob City was, you know, started and created. And I heard that, you know, the Lakers had vetoed the trade of Chris Paul and um, his other destination. He wouldn't mind coming to the Clippers. And, you know, I was I was talking closely, uh, you know, uh, you know, we got a lot of mutual friends and folks in that circle and I heard that he was coming to uh, the Clippers and I was just waiting on the news to break and that's why in that epic video you saw me on the phone while everybody else was jumping around and I was actually talking you know uh, to my brother I was talking to Chris and I said get the cameras away from me because I already knew that you know the deal was in motion and he was coming and I was excited about the whole thing and that's when Lob City was created and you know that's when the culture had changed for the the Los Angeles Clippers, and you know that was the first that was the that was the first Pacific Division championship ever won in history, and I think that a lot of people get history distorted, and if you let enough people tell history, they'll tell it the way that they want. You know, I mean, for God's sake, they believe Christopher Columbus discovered America still. You know, so it's like it's like one of those things. You know what I mean? Like it's like one of those things, bro. Like where you have to. I'm glad y'all asked that question because the truth need to be told, and that's when Live City started. And I think that that the second year that was the best Clippers team ever, and we should have, you know, really competed at, uh, for a championship that season. So you had your your. I remember because that I was sort of growing up a Clippers fan at the time, and I remember watching you. You had your, you know, you had six three pointers in one quarter. I think you had a nine three pointer game. Uh, what was that chemistry like with CP Blake DJ yourself? Uh, that core looked like it was ready to make a legit run. Yeah, I, I totally agree, and I feel like, you know, what happens is that, you know, sometimes you know, people overthink. Uh, chemistry and 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 uh, you know you start you know trying to do favors you know and look out after people guys and friends and stuff and then all of a sudden the chemistry that once existed is getting you know uh, you know taken away and uh, that's that's what happened with that ball club I think that egos played a huge part of it uh, and and I I think that you know Chris and you know Blake and DeAndre all close friends now, but definitely would tell you like back then it was just a lot of you know immaturity, you know and you know if everybody would have got including myself, uh, if everybody would have got out their own way, you know we it's no no reason why we shouldn't have been more successful. Yeah, because on paper I mean looking at it. Chris Paul, you had you guys the second year. You guys had Matt Barnes, Chauncey Billups on the team. Obviously, he got injured. But Jamal Crawford, uh, yourself, Blake, DJ. I mean, you guys had a team that that probably should have gotten to at least the conference finals, uh, just just on paper. Yeah, I mean, I felt like we had everything in place, and like I said, it was just you know immaturity, uh, you know, uh, and I felt like you know a lot of guys now after you go through the hardships and you understand that you know 
longevity isn't so long. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and you look at it, and you're like, you know what? Like, damn, like we just, we just like crapped out on a on a like a fixed hand. Like this was a great opportunity, and we just like just threw it away. Like this, this forfeited the whole thing, and that's that's unfortunate. You think everybody feels that way about that? That that, that sort of one hundred percent. Absolutely, because now everyone, you know, the, the the benefit for, you know, Chauncey was, you know, Chauncey already, you know, won a, you know, he pretty all-star, he got the championship, you know, finals MVP, he'd done it already. So mm-hmm. it's not going to hurt him. You know, uh, with me, you know, everything that I wanted to do in basketball, I did, you know, um, I got me a championship, uh, multiple all-stars, all that stuff. You know, and when you look at the legacies of some of these players, you know, they're like, damn, you know, what – you're going to look back at your basketball shelf life and be like, what team did I realistically have the best shot at capturing the title? You know, Matt Barnes was able to go to Golden State and get one, you know, um, and be part of that run. Uh, Chris Paul, when you look at Houston, you know, the injury to himself, you know, all the what-ifs, but the, where he was in, you know, total control – was with the Clippers and could have been dominant for years. And this, you know, it's probably going to eat away at them. Just like, damn, what, you know, what actually could have happened if we would have just, you know, kind of got on our own way a little bit and kind of made that work. You know what? I find that interesting uh, with the Chris Paul angle and, and how it, he as a player should have changed the course of NBA history multiple times. Like, if he got traded to to the Lakers like he was supposed to, right, before it was vetoed and all that, who knows how many rings they could have won with Kobe, right? And I heard, I think Dwight was still headed there, like, right after that. But then there was that recent rumor that, uh, that was it Clay and Steph were going to get traded for Chris Paul at some point? I mean, if that happened, that would have changed the course of history completely. The three-point revolution yeah, may have not may have not kicked into gear completely, and then there's you know Paul going down with a hamstring when, with the Rockets. They could they could have beat the, the Warriors that year. I mean, it's crazy, bro. It's a lot of you know what ifs and scenarios out there that could have actually taken place, and you know I'm just I always tell them like Chris, my brother, he's my friend away from the game of basketball, and I always tell them like you know everything happened for a reason and I think that because of his experiences I think that's why we're seeing the best version of Chris Paul and his leadership now with the type of team that they have now you know OKC I was gonna say are you surprised because I want to bring up Chris Paul now I mean he's everyone counted him out sort of coming into the year um and you know he was old he's overpaid all this and that uh but he's turned in a terrific year before the hiatus. I mean, he was mentoring uh, young Shea Gildas-Alexander. Uh, they had Dennis Schroeder playing well, but Chris Paul was really the catalyst of their run. They've been they've been tremendous all year. Did you see that coming? Man, listen, don't ever count Chris Paul out. Chris <laughs> Paul is a no, – uh, no, all seriousness, like he's a competitor. Uh, he, he, he imposes his will on situations, and he's a student of the game you know, and where he understands the game inside out and he does it in a masterful way. Like, you know, this guy is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Like, mm-hmm. he gets it. 
And I think that, you know, just what he's done this season, like everybody thought that it was going to be the same old, same old, where you have the disgruntled superstar and you have all these scenarios and things. And he literally just came in and just kind of took everybody by surprise and just did all the things that he was supposed to do. And I'm just – I applaud that. That's why I keep telling folks I feel I feel like this is his best job from a leadership standpoint. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you look at you mentioned we mentioned the Thunder right now. Uh, you you had a run with KD with Russ, uh, and you guys played the Clippers in that series a year after um, you know playing for the team. Uh, do, do you remember that series? Yeah. Uh, you, the, the, the funniest thing about you know playing against the Clippers and OKC and that whole series, I so me and Eric Bledsoe got traded and I went to the Suns hmm. and uh, I ended up getting traded to Milwaukee because that's where I wanted to be ultimately and they wanted me but for some reason the Clippers wouldn't do the deal in Milwaukee. Oh, this is crazy! So I had to go. I had to make a stop in Phoenix for like three weeks. And I ended up going to Phoenix, and then I ended up getting the deal done where I went to Milwaukee because I just I knew I was on the back end of my career. I always wanted to put on that Milwaukee Bucks jersey. Right. However, I tell you this: all I ever wanted to do was make sure the Clippers did not get far in the playoffs. And <laughs> I'm telling you, no, a lot of people, yo, nobody ever asked me this. So, like, you know, when I was with OKC, I pulled out the famous phone call, right? Mm-hmm. And I start doing the phone, the phone thing every time I made threes. And I pulled it out in the Los Angeles Clippers series because that was the series I, that I was waiting for. Like, I took a buyout with the Bucks, and I went Giannis his rookie year. And I left my young fella, I didn't want to leave because it's home, it's perfect. I could have stayed with the Bucks for four years and just kind of been an ambassador and you know how that thing goes. Mm-hmm. But I, I said, you know, I have to do this because the Clippers will possibly, you know, go to the finals, you know, in the Western Conference. I can't have that. So I went, took the buyout, joined OKC, told them all the strengths and weaknesses of the Clippers, and then uh, we <laughs> finally got the matchup. We got the matchup of our dreams. I'm playing against Matt. I'm playing against the Clippers. I'm playing against – and I just start knocking out threes, and then I pull the phone out. Because, one, I never got a phone call from the Clippers organization once I got traded. And I felt like I was so much part of the fabric of the transition of the culture change, and I just wanted them to let them know how much I missed them. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> wow. So, I, I mean <laughs> – <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty good story. I didn't, I didn't know that at all. I do remember you making that phone call motion, though. I, I do remember that. A lot, uh, a lot of people don't know the story. They don't, they don't ask where it came from or anything, and that was the first time I told it. Well, but, players have random celebrations right. sometimes, but uh, yeah, that, that's interesting to know. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's, uh, that's pretty. So, do you think they got the message? You think they, they understood? Yeah, they knew. Because every time I was like, you know, but look, I knew how they was going to guard Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, because they couldn't guard him. So they, they was going to double team those guys and all that. And I was always like, even when it wasn't my play, I mean, Reggie Jackson or whoever, I was like, no, you go to the other corner. Because I wanted to be the guy to knock down those key threes in that series and look at that bench. <laughs> that I made, I made it point of emphasis 
Scott Brooks was like, yo, you ran to the other corner. I was like, I know. Because I wanted to be the guy to hit the shot in that series to just just be like, yeah, like I needed that. You know what I mean? So that that was very important for me to do that. Did you ever talk to those guys afterwards, the, the players on the, the Clippers that you oh, knew? my brothers. Yeah, yeah. My, after the series, yeah. But not during the series until it was over. Because, you uh, know, look, like – I always felt like, look, that we 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 had a great team and great chemistry, but I really just wanted. I knew the team inside out because you know you was part of the fabric what helped develop the team, and they kept yeah. they kept guys that really wasn't there at the beginning to start what that was. So it was important for me to just you know be a part of you know breaking it down a little bit. <laughs> Come on, I, I commend you on that. That's a uh, that's a great story. I did not know that. That that's amazing. Yeah, um, that is. <laughs> well, I mean, in the brief time you got to play home, what was it like? I mean, you only played a series here, thirty-four games at home in Milwaukee, close not not far from Racine. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, it was fun. It was it was everything I dreamed of, and I, I I'll never forget like you know having bobblehead nights and going out and scoring thirty points, and you know this having fun. You know, I I never forget one of my you know my close friend, you know Chris Paul. You know he was. He was texting me in the midst of that season. He was like, damn, bro, you look like you're having fun over there. And I was just like, I always, I, you know, as a kid, you know, you go from these youth centers and these programs and they put you in the nosebleed seats. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you get a chance to watch the Bucks play. And I was just like, damn, I, that was my introduction to basketball. I wanted to always put on that uniform and just, you know, give, you know, my community something to be proud about. And that's a that's a historic moment for me. You know, we did a whole pep rally at my high school when I signed the contract to come there. Like, I just – that was something – even if it even if it was 10 games, I just had to do that uh, at some point in my career, and I'm glad I did it. And I had, like, some success, like, individual accomplishments that I wanted to make happen, and I did it. Wow. That, that, that's great because not, not, not a lot of players get to play home, and I think that when you see – uh, you know, you just talked about it right now. I think, I think you, LeBron's talked about playing at home in, in Cleveland, not far from Akron. Uh, just examples like that. I think it, it's it just seems very fulfilling. Uh, it's what guys really want at some point in their careers. Um, it's inspiring, man. Like you inspire kids to a whole nother level. Because can you imagine like being at a community center and then going to like a, a high school or elementary school? And then all of a sudden, kids seeing you on the news, and then they seeing you playing basketball for their favorite NBA team. Right. And then you're in the neighborhood, and you, oh shit, I saw him at the grocery store, or you know, it's just, it's 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 a feeling like no other, man. And especially you know when it's your home, like it's your it's your roots. Mm-hmm. It's like it's important. It's an important fabric of history. It gives it gives kids a chance to see you know that that it's real and that it's possible with, with hard work. I, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, two more, two more stops for you. You had, uh, you had Detroit and Sacramento, um, and then you. I mean, I don't. Did you play much in Sacramento? No, nah, not really. You know, I was, I was, I was there uh, for mostly just, you know, monitoring and babysitting. Who were you babysitting? <laughs> well, all the guys, pretty much. You know, I had to. You know, I was the old man at that point, so I just had to keep an eye on my teams and my squad, and you know. Fortunately, you know, we had a whole bunch of mature adults, you know what I mean, that, 
you know, that got it. You know, um, I think that the, the guy that, you know, I was there to kind of help and embrace a lot was DeMarcus Cousins. And I did, and I think that he did a remarkable job at just being transparent. And I think that, you know, for his career, man, uh, I love the kid, man. Like, he's just misunderstood as a person. You know, he's a genuine dude. And I, I always say, like, if you're going to keep it real with him, he'll definitely keep it real with you. Interesting. Why? Why is? Why has it been so trouble? I mean, in his time, at least in Sacramento, it was uh, he was probably one of the most, probably the best big men in the NBA. Um, but there was the, I mean, the rumored hot, you know, hot headedness sort of of his, the the lack of, um, you know, restraint with referees sometimes. I mean, is that just something a young player has to go through? Was he going through other things as well that made it tough to go through that? Yeah, you know, I think that is part of it. You know. Um, you know, with the George Carl situation, there was a lot of, you know, miscommunication, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from, you know, up top to, you know, the coaching staff and then to the locker room. And because of that miscommunication, it became, you know, a fracture. And once the fracture was discussed and supposed to be repaired, you know, you never go back to that space. Otherwise, you never can cross that path again. And I think that bridge was burnt because it was just so much, confusion and distrust, you know, over and over again, where it's like, you know what, that bridge is burnt. We can't even revisit that situation. And because that bridge was burnt, it never was going to be right until either, you know, a departure of one of the individuals. And, you know, um, it happened. It it happened at some point where, you know, uh, George Carl's end up, you know, leaving. And then Jaegers end up coming, and I think he's seen somewhat of, you know, some success, you know, DeMarcus and trying to, you know, put it back together. And then he was eventually traded, and, you know, that whole thing just kind of spiraled into another direction. How much does that really happen in the NBA with players and coaches just not seeing eye to eye? I mean, you hear a lot about it, but you don't really know, right? As a, you know, somebody yeah. looks from our perspective, not a player's perspective. So from a player's perspective, what would you say? I mean, you see it for all the time from a, uh, you know, from a player's perspective, like players and management or, you know, coaches and management, or it's it's one of those dynamics that kind of, you know, like people seeing the, the infrastructure of what the, the Bulls was now with the last yeah. dance doc. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's players with management and then with coaching management. So you see the players and the coaching staff on the same page with management now. And then sometimes you see which is – uh, the, the the situation I just explained where you see the players on the same page, but then the coaching staff not on the same page. You know, so it's like it it just is those dynamics that, that happen. That's why it's always, you know, you know, spoken of where it's great to have, you know, management in place, management hire the coach, and then management and coach, they go build the team. You know what I mean? Or you have the star mm-hmm. player and then the star player have the relationship with the coach, and then they love ownership and management. Everybody's on the same page, and then they go get the ingredients that complement the star player. You know, like those things are paramount. You know, and then then you have the things vice versa, where you know you have this guy was hired by the last regime, this guy, you know, all, and then it, it just don't work. So it's a method to the success of what you've seen in the years of some of these great organizations. You know, when you look at the Celtics, the Boston, the, you know, the Boston years and the Spurs and the Miami Heat, uh, the Lakers, Ghost State Warriors, all, all these teams, the Pistons, you know, what 
name some of the the common denominators that they had in common. You know, they had their players. The players were drafted by the ownership and the in the in the front office, and you know, the the coach was hired by the front office, same front office, and, and then, you know, everything was just in place intact, and that's why they were successful. Everybody else was trying to you know you know take the elevator instead of the stairs and take you know expedite the the whole process. You know, so some 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 forms it works, but at sometimes it it, it doesn't work for everybody. Wow, there's, there's a lot going going on behind the scenes that that's never even been brought up to light. Say that again. Yeah. So I mean, <laughs> looking back at your careers, traded six seven times on multiple different teams. Do you have one that you look back on as? At the time, you weren't sure if it would work out. Maybe you didn't want to go there. But after looking back at it now, you're saying, you know, this was a good opportunity for me. This was a good thing for me. Everywhere I went, it was a lesson. Mm-hmm. A good lesson. Yeah, I, I mean, it's an educational lesson. Uh, if I wouldn't have went to Miami, it would. Miami prepared me for life and prepared me for the Lakers. If I wouldn't have went to the Lakers, I would not have had one of the best relationships I ever had in my life with my big brother, Kobe Bryant. You know, like, he was one of the biggest assets to my life ever. You know what I mean? And if I wouldn't have went to the Washington Wizards and had, you know, a ton of individual success, I wouldn't have known how to deal with uh, the situation in Dallas. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Like, every every component, like, kind of, like, shaped me for, you know, my basketball career and who I am, and then it also prepared me for life. Because I think that, you know, sports do that. You know, sports teach you how to deal with adversity on the fly, how to be consistent, how to, you know, uh, <laughs> be a role a role player, a star player, all those right. things. And then right. you have to do that to conduct yourself in life as well. When you when you decided to hang it up, hang up the sneakers, call it a career, uh, how did you make that decision? And then did you know where you wanted to go right away? Like, I think you made a pretty quick transition into broadcasting and uh, some of the analyst role. But did you know you wanted to go into that right away? Absolutely. Uh, I was doing I was doing this since like 2006, 2007, where I was doing like interviews and the car wash in the summer where you go to ESPN and you do all the shows. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I always was accessible like for interviews with, you know, whoever, you know, whether it's radio, podcasting wasn't the thing then, but like whatever platform you was doing, you know, I was just like, yo, let's do it. Like, because it was something that I was intrigued by. And I'll tell you how it happened. Phil Chenier has sat down with me uh, when I was with the Wizards, and I never felt, like, so open to have a discussion with someone ever in my life. And I mm-hmm. put my guard down because he was a former player and because he went through, you know, the things that I was going through. And I was just like, man, I want to be that for, you know, some of these athletes one day. And that's what, like, intrigued me to do it. I went to Syracuse Broadcasting School. I took advantage of the programs. I did some some internships you know, for corporate, and then I eventually made the transition into this space. Did you do any of that throughout your NBA career, or did you only do that after? No, I did it in the midst of my career. Yeah, yeah, I uh-huh. did it in the summers. Yeah, uh-huh. I was going in summers and doing it. Wow, that's impressive. Cause you're, you're, you look like a natural now, and I've, I've seen you at a couple couple Clipper games myself, sitting, uh, was it, three rows, going to courtside, doing the, the, you know, courtside reporting. So you look like a natural at it by now. Um, so yeah, congrats, I on, it, congrats on the transition. Um, yeah, thank you. When you what? Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Ryan. No, I was going to say, um, Karan, if if the, if the NBA does come back, 
who who do you think is going to win the title? Man, you know, I still, you know, I had to. I, I don't change from my opinions. You're going to get to know that about me. I, I said that about the, the Lakers earlier this season. I just felt like, you know, it it just felt right if LeBron, you know, win this year. And that, and I said like all all things was pointing to that. You know, and I think that, you know, the Lakers had the, the best shot at capturing that title this season. What, what did you make of the uh, of the roster the Clippers constructed? Uh, they were probably – I would agree that the Lakers are probably the heavy favorites just because of the – not heavy favorites, but uh, because of LeBron and AD, that, that one-two star power is really hard to, to, to shut down and stop. But uh, what did you make of the Clippers and, and how they were playing prior to the break? I mean, they, they were 10-1 when fully healthy this year. Uh, 23-8 and eight with Kawhi and PG play. Uh, I think health was just the biggest issue for them. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think that, you know, chemistry is extremely important. And I think that, you know, when we initially saw them, uh, you know, be put together, you know, from a defensive standpoint, it was just like, holy, like, do you know how good the Clippers are going to be defensively? And we just never seen that side of it. Like, they were solid, and they showed the splashes. You know, Pat Beverly always going to do his thing. Paul George, you know, Kawhi Leonard, he is who he is. But we just never seen, you know, the whole package completely come together, you know, yet. You know what I mean? And we know that it's there and it's going to happen at some point. But that thing, you know, in order to see that, you need games under your belt. You need that that time, and I don't think that right now, like say if the, the season come back, it's probably going to come back in a different form and be right. kind of uh, expedited and pushed forward, so I don't think we'll get a chance to see that come into fruition the way we want, but next season, we definitely will see it. Ka- Kawhi has turned into a really just like a, an individual superstar, like great, I mean obviously with the team is, is great as well, but like when you guys played them in the conference finals when you were with the Thunder, uh, he wasn't the player he is today. Uh, so what do you make of his of his development and the way he's grown as a player um, since since that series you had against him? Well, he was you knew he was good though. Like he just continues to excel and get better and better. Like every aspect of his game, you know, whether it's his jump shot, defensively, uh, his skill set. Now he's putting the ball on the floor even more. Like mm-hmm. initially, he just just have the one. Two, maybe a counter. Now he got like the whole bit bip, and I'll introduce you to hip hop. You know what I'm saying? Like I'll hang over <laughs> you. You know, I'll take the ball from you. I'll like he just he got the whole package, man. Like he got it all, man. He's a he's a problem. Uh, is, is there anything? Is there anything uh, you you want to still do? Uh, in your life right now, uh, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's career-wise or helping other people-wise. Is there anything else you want to do? I'm gonna do a lot of things. There's no silence. I think that you know a lot of people, you know, from you know the Kobe Bryant's of the world and LeBron James and so many more that just taught us like don't put a ceiling or you know limitations on anything that you're capable of doing. You know, I'm gonna produce things. I'm gonna write more books. I'm gonna just continue to create more content. I'm going to be on different various platforms, some that I create, some that I have just, you know, ownership and equity in. I'm just going to be pretty much everywhere just being elusive, but at the same time just, you know, building and, you know, just inspiring as many as I can. Do you have an update on Tough Juice, the movie? Yeah, I, I, I can't 
talk about it, but yeah, we do have an update, and everything's at a standstill now, of course. Oh yeah, yeah, man, near future, definitely near future. Karan, real quick, where where did the nickname Tough Juice come from? For those for those who don't know, (laughs) Eddie Jordan, man. Uh, Eddie Eddie Jordan. Jordan, He. Eddie Jordan. Eddie Jordan. Eddie Jordan. Okay. Yeah. He had me with the Wizards. Yeah, I. You know what? I had a crazy injury. I don't know which one it was at this time, but I had one injury, and I wasn't expected to play for like five, four to six weeks or whatever that timetable they always give everybody to get an injury. It's like four to six weeks. And uh, <laughs> I come in, and, you know, Eddie Jordan's like, man, what are you? I said, man, I'm playing. I'm active. Man, <laughs> he, he, he just said, you want, you know, you want tough mother elf, man. I, that was just, everybody's like, man, call him tough juice. And it was just a joke. and. It kind of just stuck, and you know I never forget. Kevin Garnett came to the Boston Celtics with their big three, came to Washington, and they played. And they was like, "Damn, tough juice!" And I was like, "Well, there it goes. It's a household name. It's stuck. So that's we're gonna <laughs> stick with it." <laughs> so so <laughs> nickname is spread around the league like that. Yeah, it, it spread it quick, and this was before social media, man. So that lets you know guys are reading their scout report. Yeah. <laughs> I got, I, I got one more for you before we wrap it up. Uh, do you like this uh this social media age with everything going on? Like you you talked about how you saw your your trade to to, to the Lakers on a ticker on ESPN. Nowadays you'll see it on Twitter from Woj or Shams or whoever or Chris Haynes. You'll see it there. Boom, already on before sometimes before players even know. Did you do you, do you like that? Do you hate that? I mean that's that's just the, that's the new era. That's the new age. Like you know you don't have to like it, but you that's what it is now. Mm-hmm. You know I didn't I didn't like reading articles in the paper, but now you see them online and then you see them in real time, you know, whether you don't have to wait for the story, you know, before you get traded at, you know, 9 PM. And it's like, okay, shit. I, I wonder if it made a deadline. I might not see it for 48 hours in the paper, but now you get traded at 9 PM, the story up at 9:20. you know, yeah. it's, it's like, <laughs> I, I like, quick. I like the, yeah, I like that process of it because, you know, it's, it's it's so many positives, and then it's also negatives. But that's with all things. Like, it's positives and negatives to everything. But I, it's certain individuals that just do a great job of authentically reporting the facts, and those are the individuals that I like, you know, following and listening to their story. Uh, Karan, do you have anything else you want to promote or plug uh, for the audience, for the viewers, listeners? Oh, no, man. I, you know, it was great, you know, sitting, you know, chopping it up with you guys. Uh, you can find me, Tough Juice Podcast, on all, you know, podcast platforms. You know, I, you know, take pride in, you know, telling real stories and, you know, people from all different walks of life, whether it's business, sports, whatever, you know, just giving insight and the different optics of, you know, how they was able to, you know, make it and be successful. Okay. Karan, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time, telling us a bunch of wonderful stories, honestly. Uh, the phone call one really had me with, with the Clippers series. That was amazing. Uh, uh, as always, um, you, you guys can find us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, uh, iHeart, um, Battle for LA Podcast. Uh, be sure to leave us a five-star review if you like the podcast. We're going to have more guests on in the coming weeks. Um, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, concerns, leave those for us as well. We want to hear it. Uh, you can follow Ryan uh, at Ryan Ward LA on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. You can follow me at Tomera Zarly. That's T-O-M-E-R-A-Z-A-R-L-Y on Twitter and Instagram. Um, and that's it for this episode. We hope you guys enjoyed. 
Uh, Karan, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Um, and we hope you have a safe quarantine period. We hope everyone stays safe out there as well. Um, and yeah, we hope you enjoyed. We'll catch you guys next week.